us. We need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Emma. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 227, Poltergeist. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. They're here. Welcome to Verbal Diorama. All of you brand new listeners to this podcast and also welcome back. Regular returning listeners. They're all here, hopefully. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And as always, I'm delighted to have you here, not only for this podcast, but also for the history and legacy of Poltergeist, because this episode, so much fun, so much fun to research this. But before I get into Poltergeist, I just want to say, as always, so much love and thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast, but also who's listened to the most recent episodes of this podcast on The Lost World Jurassic Park and Wishmaster. And to the surprise of no one, we are back with Mr. Steven Spielberg. Although this is it now. I don't think we're going to be returning to him anytime soon after this. I don't think. Just thinking of the schedule. No, I don't think we are. But yeah, he's popped up a lot recently. And then Wishmaster. Wishmaster is really just a tiny cult movie. And you wouldn't think it had caused much of a splash on a movie podcast. But it really seemed to. And... I'm just thrilled because it's such a fun movie and it deserves way more of an audience than it ever got. So the fact that people have really responded to that episode is just wonderful as far as I'm concerned. But speaking of audiences, now I first saw Poltergeist maybe when I was in my teens and I was petrified of it. And I was so petrified, I think I turned it off because I was so scared and I just never went back to it. And the idea of doing it for this podcast, honestly, filled me with dread. But I was like, come on, Em, big girl panties on, just do it. And so I did it. And honestly, this movie is so impressive. But the movie is nothing without or compared to its history and legacy. And it is genuinely one of the most fascinating stories I have ever researched for this podcast. So... I am thrilled that I put my big girl panties on and watched this movie because I got so much out of this movie, just generally. But I also really loved the movie as well. So here's the trailer for Poltergeist. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. Well, who did you meet? Who's here? 
TV people. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh... We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately. What, what kind of disturbances? I don't know what hovers over this house. is a frightening new threshold into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. And the games are over. It knows what scares you. The Freeling family live in a seemingly idyllic, brand new suburban neighborhood in Cuesta Verde, California. Life is normal until strange occurrences begin to plague their home, starting with furniture moving on its own and ghostly voices speaking through the TV. As the paranormal activity intensifies, the youngest daughter, Carol Ann, is mysteriously abducted into another dimension through a portal in her bedroom closet. Desperate to rescue her, the family enlists the help of parapsychologists and a medium. Together they confront malevolent spirits and a vengeful poltergeist that have taken control of their house, culminating as the family fights to bring back Carol Ann from the other side. Let's, as always, run through the cast. First, we have Craig T. Nelson as Stephen Freeling, Joe Beth Williams as Diane Freeling, Beatrice Strait as Dr. Lesh, Dominique Dunn as Dana Freeling, Oliver Robbins as Robbie Freeling, Heather O'Rourke as Carol Ann Freeling, Martin Casella as Dr. Marty Casey, Richard Lawson as Dr. Ryan Mitchell, Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina Barons. Michael McManus as Ben Tuthill, Virginia Kaiser as Mrs. Tuthill, and James Caron as Louis Teague. Poltergeist has a screenplay by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace, and Mark Victor, story by Steven Spielberg, and was directed by Toby Hooper. Now, I've mentioned quite a lot about Steven Spielberg, just generally on this podcast, but also the last few episodes of this podcast, because Spielberg's experience making Jaws would define a lot of his work going forward. And I've talked about that in the episode that I did on Jaws and its sequels, and the episode on Jurassic Park and on the recent episode on the Lost World Jurassic Park and why Spielberg wanted to take the reins for his first non-Indiana Jones sequel. Similar to Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind's production was challenging as its effects shots caused the budget to go over. Columbia Pictures, which was then facing bankruptcy, was ill-equipped to cover the cost. Columbia was potentially going bankrupt and Close Encounters would either save or destroy the studio. Similar to Jaws, Close Encounters also faced obstacles on the way to the big screen, but it overcame them to earn $288 million, a number that increased even further when it was re-released in 1980. 
And so, just like for Jaws, Spielberg feared sequels to his creations would be created without him. And so when Columbia Pictures expressed interest in a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Spielberg had no interest in doing it, but also didn't want the project taken by someone else. And this really is a story of an idea that became so fruitful, it spawned other, better ideas. And it turned out Spielberg was fascinated by a particular true story and decided to base his initial story on those true events. In August 1955, 11 members of the Sutton family in Kelly, Kentucky, claimed to have been terrorised by a group of what they called Little Green Men. At around 7 o'clock in the evening, a bright object was seen in the sky. Shortly after, a small being with an odd appearance was seen outside their farmhouse. The Suttons reported that after becoming afraid and arming themselves, there was a tense standoff for many hours as the creatures repeatedly emerged and vanished. The intruders, according to a family friend of the Suttons, had an oversized head almost perfectly round, arms extended almost to the ground, hands had talons, and oversized eyes glowed with a yellowish light. At around 11pm, the petrified Suttons left the area and drove to the adjacent Hopkinsville police station after shooting at the mysterious visitors. After state and military police were called to the farmhouse, nothing but shot casings were discovered on site. The creatures apparently returned at about 2.30 the next morning after the officials had left, continued to threaten the family who once more fled their home. Despite the fact that a thorough investigation was started, no proof of the creatures was ever found. Nevertheless, despite the lack of evidence, the occurrence went viral, as viral as you could be in 1955, and became a mythical UFO encounter called the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And it was ufologist J. Allen Heinick who told Steven Spielberg of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Because Spielberg had always been fascinated by alien life and UFOs, and Spielberg was so fascinated about this story that he decided to write a story based on this story. And so after the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he decided he wanted to do a sequel with a horror edge, initially titled Watch the Skies, which had also been a working title for Close Encounters. Spielberg then hired John Sayles to write a screenplay about a family's contact with hostile alien forces, mostly because he'd loved Sayles' work on the Jaws spoof Piranha. In Sayles' script, which focused on three children living in a rural farmhouse, teenagers Tess and Watt and 10-year-old autistic Jaybird, a spate of cattle mutilations and UFO sightings marked the arrival of the aliens, which, as described by Sayles, are close to the ones in the Hopkinsville account. Three feet high, eyes like grasshoppers, and there were four of these life forms, including one with hypnotic powers and one which could mutilate with its long, light-emitting finger. I'm sure you're thinking, long, light-emitting finger? Well, that sounds familiar. And you'd be right. Because Watch the Skies was already trademarked, the script was changed to Night Skies. The story also featured a sweet, wide-eyed alien named Buddy, who made friends with Jaybird. Spielberg would choose not to direct Night Skies himself, because he was working on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And while he had originally approached production designer Ron Cobb to direct, after the pair had met while Cobb was working on Conan the Barbarian, Cobb would turn the project down and Spielberg would approach the Texas Chainsaw Massacre filmmaker, Toby Hooper, to take the helm of Night Skies. He also hired Rick Baker, who was at the time a rising star in the makeup industry, after his work on An American Werewolf in London, to manage the project's alien effects. And Baker produced a range of sketches and life-size models, 
at a reported cost of $70,000, a working prototype of the lead alien Scar. So we've got hostile aliens terrorizing a family, plus a sweet, kind alien befriending a young boy. And I'm pretty sure you can see where this story is going to be going. But let's continue. John Sayles completed the script and Spielberg was in the middle of production of Raiders of the Lost Ark in Tunisia and started to get doubts about Night Skies. While on the set of Raiders, Spielberg showed the Night Skies script to Melissa Matheson, future wife of Harrison Ford, who was on set visiting him, and Matheson immediately focused on the parts of the story featuring the benevolent alien and the tender relationship between him and the youngest child. Sales would leave the project amicably and Matheson would write a new script titled E.T. and Me in eight weeks. But that story is for a future episode on E.T. While Nine Skies would fall apart, from the ashes rose E.T., arguably gremlins as well, but most importantly, poltergeist. But while Spielberg directed the deeply personal family alien story of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Toby Hooper was retained for the project, but Hooper didn't really feel like Night Skies was his thing. He preferred to do a ghost story. And I am going to be coming back to the directorial question over Poltergeist a bit later on in this episode. So Hooper and Spielberg decided to work together and they were inspired by The Haunting as well as Hooper's 1972 TV movie Something Evil. Hooper had found a book about poltergeists while visiting the old office of director Robert Wise, who made The Haunting, and Hooper had originally tried to get an evil ghost movie made with Universal. Hooper and Spielberg collaborated on the project while Spielberg was making Raiders of the Lost Ark by post, and this treatment, called Night Time, was dated in March 1980. It didn't credit Hooper as co-writer, but it would be revised by Spielberg a further five times, being renamed It's Night Time by August of 1980. So parts of the plot that were present from the beginning included the Freeling family, the suburban environment, the TV, the dead bodies in the freshly excavated pool, Tangina, referred to as Tagina in the treatment, and the paranormal researchers. But what didn't make it into the final screenplay included the Freeling neighbours turning against them, the family having four children rather than three, and the bodies under the home actually being those of white settlers murdered by Native Americans in the early 1800s. The amendments changed this into a cemetery where the gravestones had been moved, but not the bodies, therefore avoiding the problematic Native American burial ground trope. The treatment also didn't contain at all anything to do with tree, the clown, the home collapsing, the bodies blasting out of the yard and the house, the toys floating around in the bedroom and the closet morphing into a mouth and sucking everything in. Additionally, Carol Ann is never kidnapped by the spirits in this version. Instead, one of them takes possession of her and the family leaves the house, leaving her behind. In a Fangoria interview, Hooper stated that the idea of the ghost kidnapping Carol Ann didn't come until late in the development process and that the idea was both his and Steven Spielberg's. So they had this idea that had been developed by both Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper. And Spielberg approached Stephen King to write the script. But allegedly King's publisher Doubleday, who negotiated on King's behalf while he was travelling to the UK, asked for a ridiculous amount of money and MGM and Spielberg refused to pay it. Spielberg then met with co-writers Michael Grace and Mark Victor about possibly writing a remake of A Guy Named Joe. Spielberg would later do this, as always, in 1980, without Grace or Victor, 
Grace and Victor were more interested in Steven Spielberg's ghost story, however, and soon they got the job of turning the It's Nighttime treatment into a full-length screenplay. But once they did, Spielberg wasn't particularly happy with their draft because it included the death of Carol Ann and the violence was particularly shocking. It included Dana becoming trapped in a bathtub full of blood, the neighbour Ben Tuthill having his skull caved in by being run over by the family car, and Diane Freeling being sexually assaulted by ghosts. In the end, Spielberg oversaw a complete rewrite of the script over the course of seven days after the movie had already been set for shooting and as a Writers Guild strike loomed. With the assistance of Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, he produced over 100 pages. Input was also provided by Toby Hooper. Later, Spielberg would claim that he wrote this draft of the script alone in interviews, such as the one with Michael Ventura in the Los Angeles Weekly, although other sources stated that Spielberg engaged up to eight uncredited ghostwriters to complete the script. This official revised first draft of It's Nighttime was retitled Poltergeist and was dated 9th of February 1981. By this time, the plot had been expanded to include Carol Ann's teleportation into a different realm, the gender switch of Dr. Lesh from male to female, and the monologues from Lesh and Tangina explaining the origins of the light, the beast, and why the ghosts wanted Carol Ann and her life force. Steven Spielberg really wanted to direct Poltergeist, and some argue he actually did. But as I said, I'm coming back to that in a bit. But his contract with Universal and the production status of E.T. meant that he couldn't. There were also allegations that due to an impending Directors Guild of America strike, which never happened, Spielberg didn't want to be in control of Poltergeist at the time of the strike. And so the director's responsibility fell to Toby Hooper, as I said, then most well known for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Assembling a fairly unknown cast, including Mr. Incredible himself, Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams, who, when reading the script, missed the vital parts about swimming pool full of skeletons. I'll come back to that. When the movie was first released in 1982, Williams and Nelson were both still considered to be relative newcomers. Williams had previously been on the soap opera Guiding Light and in a few films including Kramer vs. Kramer and Stir Crazy, which had also starred Nelson in a supporting role. Nelson had performed and written humour with the Groundlings and had supporting roles in Private Benjamin and and Justice for All. For the two of them, Poltergeist was an altogether different beast, excuse the pun a high-profile, spooky crowd-pleaser with cutting-edge stunts and special effects. Oliver Robbins and Dominic Dunn, the daughter of Vanity Fair writer Dominic Dunn, were cast, but Spielberg was looking for a child with the face of an angel to play young Carol Ann. His goddaughter Drew Barrymore was the right age and had the talent, but then he spotted five-year-old Heather O'Rourke eating lunch with her mother in the MGM cafeteria, while her elder sister Tammy was filming Pennies from Heaven. Spielberg approached the family after lunch and offered O'Rourke the part in Poltergeist. The following day, she was chosen over Drew Barrymore, who was given the role of Gertie in E.T. the Extraterrestrial instead. Filming began in May 1981 through to July 1981 in Simi Valley, California. And when the Los Angeles Times arrived on set to write a piece, the journalists noted that Spielberg was a constant presence, setting up shots, coaching actors and directing parts of the movie such as the introductory scene with the racing cars himself. Again, going to come back to the directorial thing with Steven Spielberg in a bit. In terms of haunted house horror, Poltergeist is a little unique. It takes place in a newly constructed home with no previous history or occupants, in a brand new neighbourhood 
rather than what you would expect, a grand gothic manor or a spooky rundown house. And it makes it the unlikely scene of a haunting. Of course, the Freening family ultimately learned that the neighbourhood builders began development on top of the former graveyard and the construction company had only moved the headstones. And to bring these ghosts to life would take some of the most revolutionary practical effects at the time. Nearly every scene would feature a practical effect of some sort, some remarkably simple, such as the stacked chairs, which was a simple switch of camera by the crew, removing the chairs and replacing it with a pre-glued stack of chairs. The stake that slithers across the countertop was a real stake with a wire connected to a crew member under the counter who just made it slither across the countertop. Chairs were also moved in a similar fashion across the kitchen floor. The head stripping sequence wasn't in the original script and makeup artist Michael McCracken came up with it on set. The fake head prop was so expensive they could only do it in one take. And a lot of this movie is just one take. And because of this risk, the person's hands doing the ripping of the face, and this movie was rated PG at the time, just like why I'm also going to come back to that, was Steven Spielberg himself, reaching up from under the fake head and shoulders and ripping the skin and flesh off. Because if you're going to get someone to do that one time, you get Steven Spielberg to do it. But that was nothing compared to the $250,000 sentence, which is four simple words in the poltergeist script. And those four simple words are, and the house implodes. Steven Spielberg immediately gets on the phone and refers this to Richard Edland at Industrial Light and Magic because how do you make a house implode? Well, ILM underwent months of testing and development to achieve the imploding house, which was an elaborate model that had to break up and implode rather than collapse into a pile. Eventually, a number of methods were used in synchronicity to produce the effect. It involved rigging the detailed replica of the Freeling home with steel cables that extended into a funnel-like structure and then setting up a vacuum system to suck the structure in and collect any dust and debris that the cables weren't able to remove from the model. All of it was captured in a single take using a high-speed camera. The optical department worked on rotoscoping the shot and piecing it all together using the Anderson optical printer while the performers shot their scene on the blue screen stage. But that wasn't all, because Spielberg also wanted a full-size, huge esophagus capable of swallowing a bedroom. This was a miniature that was shot independently and then put together. It was never part of the actual set. And because there are no visible scenes and the miniature appears to be a genuine component of the set, this is just genuinely a masterpiece of optical compositing. The optical department also spent nine months perfecting the flying object sequence. Richard Edmund referred to this as the most challenging matting sequence he'd ever worked on because of the vast range of tonalities in the background and the numerous items that were flying in and out of the frames. Due to the nature of the optics division at the time, this shot was arduous. After passing the shot through the optical printer, if one component wasn't flawless, the crew had to start over again. The ancient tree that takes and swallows Robbie Freeling was made of rubber but also contained thorns, which made Craig T. Nelson climbing into it to retrieve his on-screen son all the more difficult. Poor Oliver Robbins would also almost be choked by that clown puppet when its grit on his neck was so tight and the boy started turning blue. That clown puppet might actually be the worst thing in the whole movie. Such an effective scare, but why? Why would you put a clown puppet in a movie? Jo Beth Williams had to perform one of the most physically taxing scenes in the movie when her character was being thrown around up against the roof of her bedroom by unseen powers. 
She did this by rolling over the walls and ceiling of the freeing bedroom set, which was mounted on a large gimbal. While gravity wreaked havoc on the actor, the camera and its operator were secured to the floor and would be shooting upside down. She appeared to be weightless as a result of that, but shooting was painful. Williams did 50 takes of it, and by the end, her elbows and knees were bleeding, and the cameraman was being physically sick. And then, there's the elephant in the room, or shall we say the skeletons in the pool, because the dirty, smelly pool made of mud, peat, and whatever else they had around was surrounded by lights and giant fans called witters, which are about 16 foot in diameter. And so when Jobeth Williams first had to get into this filthy, slimy pool, she just had this image of one of those fans or the lights falling into it and being electrocuted. She told Spielberg she was frightened and he put on waders, assured her it was all grounded so it couldn't electrocute her, and got into the pool with her for the first few takes. It wasn't until after shooting that Williams discovered the skeletons weren't plastic, but were genuine human skeletons donated to science and cheaper to buy than fake skeletons. It's one of many reasons cited behind the quote-unquote poltergeist curse, which, again, I'm going to come back to. Spielberg would say about his two movies of 1982, quote, Poltergeist is what I fear and E.T. is what I love. One is about suburban evil, the other is about suburban good. Poltergeist is the darker side of my nature. It's me when I was scaring my younger sisters half to death when they were growing up, unquote. And... We should probably just get into Spielberg's involvement in Poltergeist because on screen it is unmistakable because this feels very much like a Spielberg movie. The reports of Spielberg's involvement as director and Hooper as director by name only goes deep into interviews with various cast and crew. Some stating they were only directed by Spielberg, others saying Hooper was the one and only director. It's very clear that Spielberg was not only a constant presence, but also was very vocal about what he wanted on and off set. And having such a strong presence and big-name director on set was only ever going to be a benefit. Spielberg was deeply emotionally connected to the story, and maybe he did exert control over the production. He claims to have designed the movie through his own storyboards, his involvement with camera setups, and his shot design. In an interview with the LA Times in May 1982, Spielberg would say, quote, Toby isn't what you'd call a take-charge sort of guy. He's just not a strong presence on a movie set. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump up and say what we could do. Toby would nod agreement and that became the process of the collaboration. I did not want to direct the movie. I had to do E.T. five weeks to principal photography on Poltergeist. My enthusiasm for wanting to make Poltergeist would have been difficult for any director I would have hired. It derived from my imagination and my experiences and it came out of my typewriter. I felt a proprietary interest in this project that was stronger than if I was just an executive producer. I thought I'd be able to turn Poltergeist over to a director and walk away. I was rock. And on future films, if I write it myself, I'll direct it myself. I won't put someone else through what I put Toby through. And I'll be more honest in my contributions to a film. End quote. Spielberg continued by saying that his dedication to MGM to keep the production within 10% of his approved budget of $9.5 million it ultimately cost 10.7 million, was the reason for his extensive engagement. But even before the movie came out, this newspaper story gave credence to the many rumours that were already going around Hollywood that Spielberg had largely replaced Toby Hooper as director during filming. The Directors Guild of America launched an investigation into Spielberg's involvement, largely as a result of this piece, and to establish if the studio was downplaying Hooper's role in Poltergeist. 
The final ruling ordered the distributor MGM award Hooper $15,000 to make up for the director's lack of credit from the studio's promotional material. When Poltergeist was released just a week before E.T., Spielberg sent an open letter to Hooper in The Hollywood Reporter to publicly acknowledge his contributions and praise him for fostering a unique creative relationship as well as for his openness. But the idea that it was more like a Spielberg movie than a Hooper movie has endured. The fact that Spielberg and Hooper worked together again on an episode of the TV show Amazing Stories in 1987 and the Alien Saga Taken in 2002 is one reason why the finished film feels like a classic Amblin production. Toby Hooper would never make another movie with the same tone. This wasn't the only controversy over Poltergeist. In 1982, several people who worked on Poltergeist were deposed as part of a lawsuit filed against Spielberg by screenwriters Paul Clemens and Bennett Michael Yellen. They claimed that an Amblin employee acted as a ghostwriter who took portions of their script and submitted them to the Poltergeist production team as their own ideas. That script treatment was called Housebound and it was sent to Spielberg's production company Amblin by Paul Clemens and Bennett Michael Yellen. It was a haunted house story concerning the tribulations of a three-child family whose youngest daughter was kidnapped by the house and hidden somewhere inside it. As the family attempt to get her back, they can hear her voice calling out somewhere within the house for help. It's discovered that the home was built on top of a swamp where people had died under mysterious circumstances. And at the climax, the bodies of those who died come crashing up from beneath the home's floorboards. Clemens and Yellen never heard anything back from anyone at Amblin after their treatment was submitted. And in what was to become significant later on, Clemens' agent did not retain or lost the messenger receipt, proving that the treatment had in fact been delivered to Amblin. Two months later, Spielberg had finished his treatment for Poltergeist. And in late 1981, Paul Clemens first became aware of similarities between Housebound and Poltergeist, while at a party of the home of Alien producer Ronald Shusick. He decided to obtain a copy of the Poltergeist script and read it, and through their legal team, Clemens and Yellen Sue argued there were 67 points of similarity between Spielberg's film and their own, including the young daughter stolen away by the house, an ongoing search for her, the tree coming to life, bodies coming up out of the water, beneath the shattered floorboards of the house, a room turning into a throat with a tongue, etc. What the plaintiffs in the case believed was that an intern or other lower-level ghostwriter employee at Amblin read the treatment, jotted down a bunch of ideas, and then presented them to the Poltergeist creative team as their own contribution. It was not believed that Spielberg himself stole or authorised the theft of the material, because Steven Spielberg is a busy man and he's not going to be reading spec scripts from unknown writers. By the time the case was set trial in federal court in 1986, it was agreed that even though they lacked a crucial messenger receipt proving that Housebound had been delivered to Amblin, the plaintiffs believed their case was still strong enough, based solely on the claimed point of similarity, that they stood a 50-50 chance of winning. The defendants argued both that there was no proof the treatment had ever been delivered to Amblin and that the alleged similarities between the two works did not rise to the standard of copyright infringement under the law. And on the 17th of September 1986, Judge Marshall delivered her order for the partial summary judgment. Shortly after this date, the case was set to go to trial, and then the plaintiffs received a settlement offer three days before the trial was due to begin. The terms of the settlement were requested by the defendants and agreed upon the plaintiffs to remain confidential. Toby Hooper was quoted in a Fangoria interview with Bob Martin when discussing the making of Poltergeist. 
So we will leave him with the final say on Poltergeist as the credited director. Quote, Poltergeist will always be a tricky movie. A number of people who should have gotten credit didn't get credit. There's a lot of magic and business mysticism connected with it. We're all still trying to figure this one out. End quote. And this is actually the perfect time to segue into the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode, although it doesn't seem to be. But bear with me on this because the obligatory Keanu reference is where I'm trying the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And earlier on in the development of Night Skies, it was alleged that Spielberg was heavily influenced by Richard Matheson's short story Little Girl Lost, which was also a Twilight Zone episode of the same name. And it would later be rumoured, but not confirmed, that Matheson was hired to write the Twilight Zone movie and given a percentage of that film's box office, partly in an effort to head off any potential suit over Poltergeist, perhaps another case of credit where credit's due. But the reason I'm mentioning this and Richard Matheson is that his son Chris Matheson is the writer of Bill and Ted. So it's actually kind of a perfect obligatory Keanu reference. The music for Poltergeist was written by veteran composer Jerry Goldsmith, who Spielberg called about five months before the movie went into production. He'd long been an admirer of Goldsmith, and Goldsmith himself was very excited about being involved with anything with Spielberg. And like most of this movie's story, Spielberg was very hands-on with the musical compositions. Goldsmith would later confirm that he had no dealings whatsoever with Toby Hooper on the score for Poltergeist. The score went on to garner Goldsmith an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score, though he lost to fellow composer John Williams, obviously for E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which, for this movie, it's generally a bit of a theme that it loses out to E.T. Just before its release, it was rated by the Motion Picture Association of America, initially receiving an R rating. Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper appealed the decision, and the MPAA updated it, to the only then available rating below R, which was PG. PG-13 obviously wouldn't be created in the US until 1984, famously because of Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, two other Spielberg-infused movies. On its release here in the UK, it was rated 15, and it remains rated 15. And the fact this used to be PG in the US baffles me. But it may have been the movie's saving grace, because... It became the gateway drug to many a millennial horror fan. And because it was rated PG, parents assumed it was a fine movie to let the kids go and see on a Saturday afternoon. It led to a wave of 80s and 90s classic horror. It led to greater scares, more effects, and to those R-rated movies that became taboo and sleepovers. And to be honest, it's probably part of the reason why you have so many horror movie podcasts in your podcast apps. Poltergeist was released on the 4th of June 1982 domestically in the US, the same week as Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which would hit number one, with Rocky III at number two. Poltergeist would sit at number three, and as I mentioned, the behemoth that was E.T. the Extraterrestrial came out the following week and dominated the box office. Grease II also came out that week, superior Grease, by the way, but Poltergeist remained steadfast, not leaving the top ten for 11 weeks. On its $10.7 million budget, Poltergeist made $76.6 million domestically and $45.1 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $121.7 million. And after a hugely successful theatrical run in the summer of 1982, Poltergeist's very own afterlife benefited from cable TV and video store rentals, and it cleaned up on both of those. 
I've already alluded to, Poltergeist received three Oscar nominations, Best Original Score, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects, losing them all to Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Still a good Oscars night to be Steven Spielberg, though. It did win a BAFTA for Best Special Visual Effects instead. And in 1986, Poltergeist 2 The Other Side retained the family, minus one, but introduced a new motive for the beast's behaviour, tying him to an evil cult leader named Henry Kane. Poltergeist 3, released in 1988, finds Carol Ann as the sole original family member, living in an elaborate Chicago skyscraper owned and inhabited by her aunt, uncle and cousin. Kane follows her there and uses the building's ubiquitous decorative mirrors as a portal to their earthly plane. And there was a remake in 2015. It was produced by Sam Raimi and directed by Gil Keenan. It stars Sam Rockwell, Jared Harris and Rosemary DeWitt and was released on the 22nd of May 2015. And in April 2019, the Russo brothers were announced to helm a new remake. But I can't finish this episode without talking about the rumours of a curse. Because these rumours plagued the production with strange happenings in Joe Beth Williams' rented home to mention the revelations surrounding the skeletons, but it would be the tragic deaths of several actors throughout the series that exacerbated these curse rumours. Most notably the murder of Dominique Dunn five months after Poltergeist's release and the death of Heather O'Rourke four months before the release of Poltergeist 3. Dominique Dunn had a volatile relationship with her boyfriend, Chef John Sweeney, and had since split up from him. In November 1982, he showed up at Dunn's house pleading for her to take him back. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed Dunn's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her driveway. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but was released after three years and seven months. Dominique Dunn was just 22 years of age. Heather O'Rourke, only six years old in the first movie, was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction, and it was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. O'Rourke was just 12 years old when she died. Additionally, two other cast member deaths. The first was Julian Beck, who played evil preacher Henry Kane, had been diagnosed with stomach cancer in 1983. This took his life soon after he finished work on the second instalment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which has a very slim survival rate. And while all of these deaths are tragic, it is kind of unlikely that it could be attributed to any sort of curse. But I guess if there's any true Hollywood story about it, then must be true. I was so genuinely terrified of seeing this movie again. I hadn't even tried to watch it for over 20 years. And yeah, it scared me. But mostly, it just impressed me. Regular listeners will know I'm a huge practical effects nerd, and the effects in this movie are gorgeous, gross, and thrilling. Simple effects like a clown doll are just executed perfectly. Ghost stories represent normally a tragic or grim past, and usually spirits are anchored to the spot where they died usually in a violent fashion. But Cuesta Verde is a brand new development, with newly built homes that lack any history. And although Poltergeist is not the first haunted house in the suburbs, it is a pioneer in expanding the scope of fear. The developer's greed and corner-cutting in costs sets the entire community of Cuesta Verde up for potential peril. 
The fact Caroline was born in the home suggests that the ghosts were linked to her in the cyclical nature of birth and death. Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper were able to convey the anxieties of suburban parenthood and make the terror more relatable than ever. Its ghosts seemed like something far more horrific than regular ghost stories, and they preyed on intensely personal fears, the abduction of a young child by unknown perpetrators. I have no desire to see the remake or the sequels, to be honest. Poltergeist is the pinnacle. In fact, I walked away from it, kind of loving it. And the more horror I consume, the more I seem to be getting a fondness for the classic staples of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. And no one can deny the powerhouse in Hollywood that is Steven Spielberg, and his name alone would give this production a boost. It still feels like an ambient movie while also being a visual spectacle of perfect practical effects and makeup. And despite all that, its legacy is one of miscredits, potential stolen work, that PG rating, the absolute industry clout of Spielberg and the tragic deaths of its talented young actors. But that's what made this episode so wonderful to be able to research because it's very rare that you find a movie with so much going on in the background. Poltergeist is a terrific horror movie and it cements its legacy as just that. The novelization by James Kahn, released before the film came out and based on Spielberg's original script, has a lot more backstory that's not in the original film, including Zelda Rubenstein's character has a much larger part, most of which ended up on the cutting room floor. Maybe that's why some of the movie actually doesn't make sense. But maybe the Spielberg-Hooper collaboration was actually incredibly fruitful. Maybe it doesn't matter who directed what. Maybe it brought the best out of both men and gave us something truly great. Maybe the fact Spielberg was so hands-on was actually a good thing. It might have given us mediocre sequels and remakes, but it came from a property that gave us E.T., Gremlins, arguably even Ghostbusters has roots in Poltergeist from a paranormal investigation and ghost hunting point of view. It doesn't really matter much who made it or who didn't. What matters is the classic, nearly perfect final product. And this is a movie that stood the test of time for over 40 years and one that opened the door to a whole generation of movie lovers into a world of both fictional horror and a fascination with the paranormal. But let's all remember a time when TV literally stopped broadcasting at night. Now that is probably the weirdest, spookiest thing of all. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Poltergeist. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can also find me on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And if you do want to help spread the word and help this podcast grow, that would be amazing. Tell your friends, tell your family about this podcast and I would be so very grateful. So the next episode, you want more? I'll give you more. How about some Clive Barker? How about a puzzle box? Nope. Not the mummy, although yes, Clive Barker was in line to direct that one at one point. But what about some otherworldly pleasures? Sadomasochism. And the first of ten movies in a franchise. Say hello to the Cenobites when next week I delve into the history and legacy of Hellraiser. I promise pain and pleasure in equal measure. So join me next week for my episode on the history and legacy of Hellraiser. And just by listening, you are supporting this podcast. And I thank you for that. But if you do want to help support this podcast financially, 
you could do it one of two ways. You could go to verbaldiorama.com slash tips and give a one-off financial donation, or you could go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you could subscribe to the Patreon of this podcast and you can join the amazing patrons. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Thurn, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip, and Michelle. All people who I know that they would not leave the bodies and only move the headstones. They would actually just leave the ground alone. It is sacred ground. They would not build on this ground because they are genuine, wonderful people. They would leave the dead alone because that's what you should do. Just leave the deceased alone. I do have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. I also have a website. It's verbaldiorama.com where you can message me if you want. You can also message me on email if you want. I am verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also DM me on social media, wherever you find your social media, at Verbal Diorama. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk as well. And finally... This has is clean. Bye. Movie should know. Movie should know. Critical, critical, critical.